0: When we talk about the testimony that the New Testament church has in their community, there are several things that stand out of, as um, important. A church needs to have a reputation in its community that it is compassionate and that it, it has the values that it has. And the most important thing to upholding a church's testimony is its integrity. If a church says that they are compassionate to the needs of people in their community, but they do not demonstrate that compassion, that disconnect ultimately dissolves the effectiveness that that church can have. As we look at this practice what you preach principle this morning, in light of what a church can do in order to serve those that it has been placed to serve, I think it's important for us to consider this from a different perspective. See, in the church, we can address the personal lives of believers, or we can even constrain and construct our corporate structure to reflect our core values and our mission statement. But for all that to work... All of that to be outworking and to make an impact, it's necessary to actually look at the individuals that make up the church. This is what we've been studying as we've gone through the book of Ephesians that it is not enough that the church should um, have its core values represented or even its mission manifold in the way that it conducts itself, but each individual member has a role to play in that. In fact, It's the individual member that draws emphasis to the effectiveness of the church. So that brings me back to uh, what we called it, practicing what we preach message. This morning, I don't want to address our compassionate hearts or our generosity or even the physical manifestations of our Christian love, rather our internal condition. Stick with me. There is a plague that is becoming ever more prevalent in our world. John Ortberg quotes in his book Soulkeeping, a study from the Journal of American Medical Association, which reads, in the 20th century, people who lived in each generation were three times more likely to experience depression than folks in the generation before them. Pause for a moment and consider what that means. If in your generation, we just pull a number out of the air and say one in 10 people was likely to experience depression in their life. In your grandchild's generation, 9 in 10 people are likely to experience the same ailment. Orper goes on in his observation to say, despite the rise in mental health profession, people are becoming increasingly vulnerable to depression. Why? Martin Slegman, a brilliant psychologist with no religious axe to grind, has a theory that it is because we have replaced the church, faith, and community with a tiny little unit that cannot bear the weight of meaning. That's the self. We're all about the self. We revolve our lives around ourselves. The issue of depression may seem like a social issue, but let me be clear about the consequences that it holds on the church. When we go around sharing the good news of the gospel with our community, the sweetest news that we could ever possibly know or the sweetest news that we could ever possibly share with a gloom and a glumness in our countenance, we undermine the the, the impact that the gospel has. There is a disconnect of integrity in our own testimony. I don't say that to encourage you to Quit being downcast, but rather to acknowledge that the Bible does not limit itself to a superficial type of joy that Christians seem to cling on to. Rather, it actually draws us deeper into the emotional conditions that we experience in our humanity, because in that we can find a deeper relationship with God. Let us get. Let us not get motivated to further our facade by being okay within the church. Rather, let us realize that the. As the preacher of Ecclesiastes wrote, nothing is new under the sun. The plague found in our community between downcastness and depression and social anxiety and everything else is not a new problem. And there is not a new solution to cure it. Instead, let us seek the counsel of God and His Word to find an answer to this malady. You will never be able to overcome such a spiritual condition of wanting by forcing yourself to overcome it. The answer we seek does not come from inside of us, but from outside of us. Martin Lloyd-Jones reminds us that if we are depressed or unhappy, whether we like it or not, we will show it on our face. On the other hand, if we are in a right relationship with God and in a true spiritual condition, that again quite inevitably, must express itself in our countenance. I turn your attention then this morning, not to my wisdom, not to the wisdom that we can read about or find in this world, but only the wisdom that comes from God found in His Word. Our text this morning comes from the book of Psalms, where we'll be looking at Psalm 42, and just the first five verses this morning, as we plan to come back to the psalm next week. As we pray... I would urge you to make your way there in your Bible so you can be prepared to read along with me as I read out loud. Father in heaven, I thank you for this morning and this time that we have to worship you. Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts, soften our hearts, that we would be ready to receive your word. God, I pray that you would not withhold yourself from us, but instead that we would seek an understanding of what you have written and recorded in your inspired law that we would relish it. God, I pray that you would comfort us in your presence. In Jesus' heavenly name we pray, amen. Psalm 42, the Bible says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in the procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him. My salvation and my God. As we move into our study of the text this morning, I would ask you, I would urge you rather, to be honest about your own spiritual condition. Are you depressed? Are you spiritually lethargic, so much so that time in the Word seems unbearable? Is your relationship with God hindered by an unopenness with Him, an inability to come to God even with your sorrows. I need you to be honest because you may need help. Conditions of the spirit like conditions of the mind do not always show themselves in ways that we can see. Your friends, though they love you, may not be able to see that you need help. For that reason, we need you to be honest. Be honest, because failure to do so actually alienates you from God in a way that can perpetuate spiritual depression. Hear me. The psalmist does not shy away from crying out to God, neither should we. God can handle our crying out to Him. We will not run Him off because of our transparency. He promises to never leave us or forsake us. Neither will we run off a true Christian brother or sister who truly loves us. We need to be honest with one another. Be honest. Because the longer we put off recognizing our condition, if it is not where it needs to be, the worse it tends to become. To help you in this pursuit of honesty, I'd like to look at the symptoms of spiritual depression that are identified in the psalm this morning. We'll notice in looking at Psalm 42 that the psalmist is certainly in a place of disarray. There's some textual indications that say that he's been isolated in some way. The first ailment or the first symptom that comes along with spiritual depression is namely a social despair. Notice in verse 3 of our text that the speaker, who has been isolated from the place of worship, the people of God, has enemies whispering in his own ear, where is your God? It may be the case that when we are at our lowest, we feel that we are never able to return to God. I know this is true in my own walk, that when I've experienced spiritual despair and particularly other things, that there's a, a form of alienation that makes it impossible for me to even come to somebody to ask for help. I feel isolated and alone, so much so that I don't feel that I can come to God with my grievances. This social despair is what the psalmist is crying out about. As people alienate him further by whispering in his ear, Where is your God? This isolation only continues. Though we find encouragement in the psalmist and, and many of the other psalms in regards to the benefit that isolation and solitude can have in order to walk and our path to spiritual maturity. We find encouragement in this psalm regarding isolation and solitude. Solitude is as much a necessity to our well-being as it is to our own social condition. In many cases, the social pressures that we place on ourselves can become an all-consuming part that can drag us down. Think about it for a moment. We spend time so... uh, identifying ourselves with the groups of people that we spend time with, identifying ourselves with our jobs and our careers, our positions and our possessions, so much so that our social position becomes in its own way an idol. It becomes a deterrent to our walk with God because our own identity that's become so consumed with everything that stands between us and God, we cannot worship God because we would rather worship our social position. In fact, though the psalmist cries out that he's been isolated, that his circumstances are in many ways the cause of his despair, it is also a blessing to him that he is able to experience isolation and solitude. That he is able to level everything in his life out, that he can draw closer to God and God alone. As we come to verse 5 and he says, Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. My salvation and my God. If we look at this whole picture that's being put together here, we find that solitude, while it may be the cause and perpetuation of our despair, can also be a blessing to its cure. We'll talk about that more later. For right now, let's just look at the symptoms. We've talked about social despair. Now I want to talk about the way that this manifests itself. The way that spiritual depression can actually come out in a physical way. Look at this. The psalmist opens up by describing a panting or a thirsting. And and even this picture that his tears have been his fodder, this extreme exaggeration or hyperbole here, this picture that his physical desire to spend time with God is not simply spiritual, it's not simply intellectual, but this is physical. C.S. Lewis rightly observes that the longing to go up to Jerusalem and appear before the presence of God is like a physical thirst. While this might be hyperbole, our physical body reaps the suffering of soul despair. What makes this condition so difficult to deal with is that it bears so many similarities with general medical depression. When it is spiritual, though, we should be careful to address it from a spiritual perspective. Likewise, if it's medical, we should be careful to address it from a medical perspective. In the spiritual condition, though, it is possible that we have simply left ourselves spiritually malnourished. This physical despair that the psalmist he, he builds with intensity. I thirst for God. I long for God, as a deer pants for water. So my soul pants for God. Christians, if you have been born of God and you do not spend time with Him, you are depraving yourself of the only thing that can satisfy you. So long. As we rely on the world, so long as we entangle our personal identity with that which is outside of Christ, we will be spiritually malnourished. More so for Christians. As a new creation, our inner self is changed permanently. The Spirit of God resides within us. No longer is our desire to hear from God's Word a place of curiosity or intellectual assent. Instead, it is the sustenance That we need. The psalmist says, fodder. It is the sustenance that we rely on. Think about what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount when preaching to many. He says, Blessed are those who hunger, for they shall be fed. Blessed are those who thirst, for they shall be satisfied. Jesus isn't talking about physical hunger or physical thirst in the Sermon on the Mount, he's talking about spiritual thirst. He comes to the woman on the well and says, Come to me, I am the wellspring from me. If you drink from this living water, you shall never thirst again, but you shall be satisfied. Still, Christians think that their salvation is the end of the road in their spiritual maturity. And they wonder why Christians walk around in gloom. I would be in a gloomy state too if I did not eat. I would, I would probably have a displeasing countenance if I didn't drink water. My cheeks wouldn't be as plump or flush. Christians do not rely on the things of this world, but it seems we have allowed everything in our world to entangle our identity. What happens then when you find yourself in the position that you've lost your job? That your possessions begin to decay? when you're unable to keep up with keeping up with your possessions? What happens when your identity is dissolved along with everything that you hold so near and dear? This is the promise that we find of this world. All things in this world will rust, decay, they will be gone. Your time in this world is fleeting. The Bible says like a vapor. But the promise of God has little to do with this world. The promise of God comes from the sustenance that He gives us. This picture of the living water, I believe, is a a reference back to what's written in Jeremiah as the prophet describes God as the living water. The, The same illustration that Jesus would use in the Sermon on the Mount. Why are you in gloom and despair? Have you forgotten to drink from the living well? You thirst for that which is of God because that which of God has regenerated you, made you new. Nothing else will satisfy you, but God does promise to do just that. I'd like to pay attention to how this intensity in verses 1 through 3 develops. This physical intensity to be with God. The psalmist begins, As a deer pants for flowing streams of water, so pants my soul for you, O God. And so here we have the picture. What does a psalmist want for? He wants God. And the next verse, My soul thirsts not just God, but the living God. The eternal God. This picture drawing again, this this allusion back to the prophet um, or what the prophet would later write, depending, I don't anyways, timeline, blah, blah, blah. But, This picture of the living water, there's this picture, no longer do I just want God, I want the living God. The intensity is beginning to develop as I hunger for Him. I want it more. And it goes on, when shall I come and appear before God? No longer do I just want God. No longer do I just want the living God. But now I want to appear before God. I want to stand in His presence. I long for the day that I would be in glory with Him. I want to see His countenance. I want to come down from the mountainside like Moses. I want there to be a physical light around my face because of the time that I've spent with him. I want to be so nourished and so enriched, so in love with God that it would be evident in everything that I do in my life. And we look at Christians, on the other hand, Christians who are supposed to have a testimony of this joy, the Shekinah glory that I'm talking about coming down. The Christians are supposed to have this testimony and instead they're in gloom sitting back in their chairs reclined, bored from the Word of God. I don't know if you've ever seen somebody who starved themselves. It comes to a point. They're no longer physically able to pick up the fork to feed themselves. This is the same despair that comes when Christians are unwilling to say, I need help. There comes a day in your spiritual nourishment when you have deprived yourself for so long because you've been unwilling to recognize this condition inside of you that you need God, that your soul is panting for Him, that you are unable to pick up the fork and feed yourself. This is serious business. I lament to say that this issue of spiritual depression is not talked about in the church as often as it should. I lament more to say that we have become comfortable with our facades and the fake images that we put up of of ourselves, that we come to church more ready to present ourselves as good Christians than we do to come as church to be Christians. Transparency is at the core of fellowship. A lack of transparency is deception. Deception dissolves fellowship. That is not just true with Christian brothers and sisters, but it is also true of our fellowship with God. It is also true of our fellowship with God. Because the real problem, and the Apostle John makes this abundantly clear in the letter to 1 John, is not just that we deceive those around us, but that we eventually deceive ourselves and then allow ourselves to be liars to God. In this spiritual condition of need, because we are so fixated on our identity being entangled in things that it has no business being entangled with, we come to church and put up false pretenses, a gilded faith. We leave and pretend that everything's okay. Okay. And eventually we start to think that this is just what it means to be a Christian, to live in gloom and despair. That our quiet time with God, when we come to Him, we pray superficially. When we read with Him, we allow it to touch our lives only at the surface level. The richness of our fellowship with God has no depth to it because there is no depth in us. When we're honest. And God can handle our honesty. We come to Him like the psalmist, with a broken heart, in pitiable circumstances. And we cry out, I want God. I want the living God. I want to appear before Him. Third, looking at the symptoms Of spiritual despair we've we've said that there is a social problem a social despair there's a physical despair and finally there is a soul despair the psalmist doesn't say that I want God or that I intellectually want God or he says that it is my soul that pants for God but what is the soul We use spiritual language sometimes and and it becomes difficult when we don't spend time actually defining what these words mean. When the psalmist used the word soul, he wasn't specifically just referring to his spiritual walk, but he was talking about the whole composition of who he is. The soul is not who we are. no, 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 the soul is the soul is I didn't prepare for this. The soul is everything that we are. If you think about the way that you were created in God's image, there's different parts of us. There's different components that make up who we are. We have a mind that is capable of, of making up our thoughts and, and even our feelings, our emotions. All of these different kinds of things come from, from the mind. God also gave us a will. We have volition. We can make decisions. And in that will, I have intentions that I can actually put out into the world. I can make a decision to do something. I have a body that physically exists in the world. That's my actions. Do you know what the soul is? It's all of that. It's all of that brought together. And here's the biggest issue. Because there's those three different parts, it's possible for these things to become disintegrated from each other. Not disintegrated, but the opposite of integrated. I have a will because I know a moral code of God and I want to do what is right by God and I know that it's wrong so I feel bad but my body, my actions do something different, my soul cries because my body is no longer integrated with these other parts of me. Likewise, if I have um, Uh, an intellectual understanding of what God's law is, but I would rather spend time doing things my own way and my intentions resemble deceit or my intentions resemble self-ambition. There's disintegration in who I am. There is soul despair. And this is really the issue that the psalmist has, because he knows that he has God to praise. He knows that despite his circumstances that God wants him. And so his will is showing that he wants him, but he cannot be with him. He cannot go up to Jerusalem. Your soul is what integrates your will, your intentions, your mind, your thoughts and feelings, your values and your conscience, and your body, your face, body language, and actions into a single life. A soul is healthy, well ordered, where there is harmony between these three entities and God's intent for all creation. When the soul is with God, it doesn't matter if you are a dishwasher or a president, the soul thrives, not through our accomplishments but through simply being with God. This is the part of ourselves that needs ultimate healing, integration between our values, intentions, and actions. This is the part of us that cries out to be with God, the God who created it, the God who designed it, the God who has a perfect will for it. And I say it. But a personal pronoun would be bet more suitable for you. I spent some time this morning looking at the symptoms of despair, and I think that's enough. I'll just well, no, no, that wouldn't be very helpful, would it? God's word gives us more than that. It doesn't just tell us how to diagnose the spiritual issues that we face, but it also points us towards the solution. Going on, the psalmist. Um, confronts the circumstances of social despair, physical despair, and soul despair, but then look at what he does in verse 4. They cry out to God for an answer in all of these things. In fact, he gives us a list of five steps that we can do to address this issue in our lives today. The first thing the psalmist does is, these things I remember. These things I remember. And I, we haven't looked at the whole psalm, but I would point out just one thing really fast. If you look at Psalm 42, it's actually connected to Psalm 43. It runs into it. It goes into it. And as you look at this, there's it's like a back and forth motion as you're moving through here because the psalmist talks about his circumstances and how he's in despair. And then you get to verse five and he says, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. And, and this pattern repeats between a lament and a lament. And then to hope. This to and fro motion actually draws out what the psalmist is doing in his reflection. His isolation, as we mentioned, can actually be good for us, begins to draw out that there is no better place for us to reflect on what God has already done. Does it need pointed out this morning that the Psalms are in the Old Testament, that this happened and was written and recorded before the cross of Christ? Think about this. The psalmist, in his isolation, sees the importance of remembering everything that God had done. He looked back at the deliverance of Israel out of Egypt. He looked back at the promises of Abraham. He looked back at the first covenants and all of these things. And still, he was able to remember the faithfulness of God. Even through the constructs of the law, he was able, which condemns, He was able to remember the faithfulness of God. For us today, we have much more to look back on because we aren't just under the constructs of the law which condemns, but we are under the constructs of grace which gives life. The ultimate fulfillment of all of these things, the cross of Christ, what has God done in His perfect self? Not just has He satisfied His own need of justice, but He has satisfied His own will In loving you, that he could have a relationship with you. Adverse conditions create an optimum context for reflection. The psalmist cannot do more than to remember. And while it might seem like circumstances are against us, that God has left us, such a quick reflection on how he has already cared for us and the generations before us reveals that he does not leave us nor forsake us, he loves those who he chastises. He loves you. Second, the psalmist says, I pour out my soul to you. This is again drawing back to the issue of transparency, how it's so important that we are transparent, if not with our brothers and sisters in Christ, with God. I don't know who you're fooling. You cannot fool an all-knowing, all-powerful God. He knows when you come to Him with a broken heart and you praise Him in thanksgiving. He would much rather you say, "God, I am broken over this," than to hear you fake your your fake praise. He asks us to worship Him in spirit and in truth, not in ingenuity and deception. So we remember, and we pour out our soul, and we go with others. Because God didn't create us to live this life alone. He didn't even give you new life so that you could go alone. Instead, what does a psalmist long for? To go with the throng. To worship with God's people. To hear them sing. To hear them praise. To be encouraged by them. Why is it important that a Christian comes to church? Because without it, they will die. Why is it important that we spend time in church? Because without it, you will deceive yourself and not even know how destitute you are. Why is it important that we spend time with God's people? Because that is who God called us to be a part of. In the body of Christ, we are not isolated. We are not individualistic. Rather, we are identified with the whole body who under the leadership of the head, Jesus Christ, and no one else is able to perform God's will in this world, that we would lead in procession. This is going to throw some of you out. Because you say, I'm in such a spiritual condition, there's no way that I could possibly lead anyone. But what does a psalmist cry out for? That he would lead them in procession. The world has taught us that leadership comes from a place of strength, ingenuity, and competence. The Bible teaches us the exact opposite. Leadership has little to do with how well you are or how good you would be at leading in a particular position. Rather, biblical leadership actually relies on our brokenness and our weakness. If you are spiritually destitute, if you're in soul despair, physical despair, any of these symptoms that we've described so far this morning, leading others through your weakness betters you to rely on God. As a consequence, your leadership's going to be better than anything you could ever muster up. In fact, the downfall of most Christian leaders is that they stop relying on God because they develop some false sense of self-competence. I would encourage you, if you feel that you are described at all or can identify with the symptoms of the psalmist here, that you would find a place in leadership and lead out of your weakness, that you would find a purpose for God because if He has left you here, He has not done so without reason. He has done so because you have purpose and meaning, because you are important, because He wants to use you to serve others, because He wants to use you to equip the church, because He wants to use you to empower the church so that the gospel would be more effective, so that the testimony of the church would be more authentic, so that those around you would actually know genuine love that comes from Christ, not fake cockamamie nonsense. Get real. Lead out of your weakness. And finally, to praise Him. I said previously that God doesn't want us to praise Him out of a place of being inauthentic, but rather He wants us to praise Him out of our genuine worship. He calls us to worship in spirit and truth. The psalmist cries out for the time that he would sing glad shouts with songs of praise. The importance of praising God cannot be overstressed or overemphasized. I think of the, the picture of Job, and after everything that Job has gone through, he, he kind of longs, before he actually gets to, to meet with God, he, he longs that he would be able to come to God and would be able to bring all of his... Um, all of his complaints and his grievances to him. He can say, God, this is what you've done wrong, and, and this is why I'm upset with you. When he finally gets to meet with God, God bombards him with a list of questions. Where were you when I created the heavens and the earth? Where were you when I formed the stars in the sky? Who planted the trees that you, or the shade that you sit upon? And he goes on and on and on and on, uh, talking about everything that's been manifold in creation. And, and we see the glory of God, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, we see the glory of God testified to itself. It testifies to the power of the Creator. It testifies to everything that God, His own goodness, His manifold wisdom being evident since the beginning of time. If we find ourselves in a spiritual condition in which we find it difficult to praise God, sometimes the answer is, is simply listening to the birds in the morning. As we consider each bird being taken care of by a loving God. A bird that Jesus even draws this analogy and says that if I'm able to take care of the birds of the sky, how much more is the Father going to take care of you? Not just so that we can remember His promises, but we can see His manifold glory revealed in creation. Try out. And I've said all this while, if you are in a spiritual condition of despair, this might be the answer for you. But my loved ones, no matter where you are at in your spiritual condition, this is the prompting that we find from this psalm. That we would cry out to God, remembering everything that He has promised us. That we would pour out our soul before Him in authenticity. That we would go with the throng in corporate worship, leading and serving in ministry, singing glad shouts and songs of praise. This commendation is not one just for somebody in despair, but it's one for all Christians. To deepen their walk with God, it's necessary. And I'd go on, moving to verse 5, and the reason I've separated this from the list of um, not imperatives, but definitely actual, actionable items, is because there is a stark transition between verse 4 and verse 5. I've said that one, verses 1 through 4 is a lament. The psalmist is crying out. He's saying, this is my spiritual condition. I'm isolated and I'm alone. And God, I I miss you. My soul thirsts for you. I pant for you. Verse 5 turns to hope as the psalmist speaks to himself and he begins to remind himself, God, or he speaks to his soul, rather. He doesn't speak to himself. That's actually important to point out because speaking to your soul is different than speaking to yourself. The difference between talking to yourself and talking to your soul is that the soul exists in the presence of God. So you will see in the Psalms and elsewhere people speaking to their souls because when you speak to the soul, it naturally turns into prayer because the soul God in the soul God is always present. The psalmist speaks to his soul Something important that comes from this is, rather than identifying in his despair and saying, "I am in," dis- or "I'm, um, I'm pitiable," the psalmist does not identify with what they are going through. Yes, they're going through it and they acknowledge it, but it does not define their identity. I can't stress this enough how important this is. Our identity exists in Christ alone. Our identity is up on the cross, the mortification of sin, our new life in Christ and the resurrection. That is the only thing a Christian can identify with. Anything outside of that destroys us. I do not identify with despair. Rather, I ask, soul, why are you in despair? All of these things I've remembered. All of these, this time, this encouragement that I've had with the throng. And the psalmist turns himself out to God. Asking, why are you in turmoil within me? He reminds himself, hope in God. Hope in God. For I shall again praise Him my salvation and my god the encouragement that we have in our transparency isn't just important in our walk with one another but it's important in the way that we come to God make yourself bare before God because we cannot hide yourself from him anyway so what are you losing I ask you with all sincerity and genuineness, what are you losing by refusing to go to God with authenticity? The answer is that you lose more in your inauthenticity than you do in your confession. While it may hurt your pride, the only place where God is able to conform us to His image is in our transparency and openness with Him. Yes, it might Hurt to admit that you need God, that you aren't capable to do this life without Him. But I promise it hurts more not to. You hurt your testimony with authenticity. You hurt the community that you're called to with inauthenticity. You hurt yourself with inauthenticity. You hurt your relationship with God. Verse five, as we come to it, reminds us that when we praise Him, we do not praise Him, we praise our salvation, but our deliverance from these things. Christians ask, why in the world are we allowed to suffer? Or why are things able, like, or why are, why are things that are bad able to happen in this world? Why is there still Christian suffering? And I remind you that when you look at the cross, you do not just see the payment of sin. You do not see just the promise of deliverance in this life but you see a Savior who has identified with all suffering that you go through. You see a Savior, when we look at the book of Revelation, we see the picture of the Lamb lying before the throne, holding the scroll. We see a Savior who has chosen to identify with you all the suffering that you experience so that He could bear the wrath of God. So that he can be forsaken. So that he could experience more suffering than you will ever know. So that all those who would identify with him would know not just his deliverance from the consequences of sin, but the joy that exists in the presence of God both while we're here on earth and that we look forward to in heaven. I urge you to take this message to heart, not just in our study, but if you would spend time looking at the psalm, meditating and considering what the psalmist writes, what it means for a deer to pant. What does it mean for your soul to cry out for God? I truly believe that it's possible that we've spent so long in our despair not acknowledging it because it's socially taboo or whatever else that we don't even realize how desperately we need life support. I urge you this morning not just to draw near to God if you've never known Him as your Savior that you could experience real deliverance from sin But if you've known Him for 20 years or 30 years, to allow your soul to cry out to Him and to know that He is there to comfort you, to know that your church is here to comfort you. Would you pray with us? Our Father in heaven, we thank You so much for Your Word and the encouragement that we find in it. Lord, I pray that You would Give us the confidence to sacrifice our pride at your altar that we would bear our cross and and only identify with you. Lord, purify us of our idolatry of self. Help us to seek you and nothing else. In Jesus' heavenly name we pray, amen. Would you stand with us as we sing?